to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, uh, disaster management, uh, emergency response, emergency management, crisis communications, and anything that can be related to those fields, you know, which can be rather large uh, sometimes. And I'd like to remind everybody that if there is a specific topic you would like to have presented on the show, please feel free, go to the Voice America website, and on the page for Preparing for the Unexpected is a little button underneath the graphic where you can send me an email. I do get all emails, and I do respond to all of them. You know, give me your idea or, you know, a name of someone you think I should have on the show, and uh, I'll look into it, and we'll see about getting either you on the show or the person you want to have on the show or find someone to talk about the topic you're thinking of. In the past, I know I've mentioned that I attended the uh, inaugural Continuity and Resilience Today conference in Toronto in May, and uh, if you've listened uh, to many shows, you'll know that uh, uh, each month I've got one of the speakers as a guest on the show, and today is no different. Today I have a presenter whose session was entitled Lessons Learned from Hurricane Harvey, Mass Care on a Catastrophic Scale. But I'm sure with uh, my guest experience uh, and expertise, we may branch out a little bit, which is okay. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Dee Grimm. Dee, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, and thank you for having me. Uh, can we st- let our listeners know a little bit about yourself? You know, so uh, give us a couple of minutes, you know, what you do and, you know, how you got into it. Sure. Um, thank you. Uh, I am... Uh from San Antonio, or I'm in San Antonio. I'm the Director of Business and Program Development for BCSS Health and Human Services. We are a international health and human service uh, corporation uh, with many entities. We service um, those populations who are typically underserved in society, uh, individuals with disabilities, uh, children at risk, uh, we do some international um, children's relief services, and we have a sort of an odd uh, entity in that even though we're a health and human service uh, agency, we're also a response agency. And we, uh, for example, are the agency that is contracted with the state of Texas uh, to provide medical sheltering in disasters. So when uh, populations are moved from the coast during events like Harvey and, and Ike and all those other ones, uh, we are the folks that come in and provide shelter services for people with medical needs. And so we have kind of a unique uh, process there. Uh, I have my background is as a EMT paramedic, ER nurse, and uh, nurse manager. And uh, during my career, uh, I went from emergency medicine to emergency management for healthcare entities, and subsequently became a consultant uh, for healthcare entities until I came to work with uh, BCFS here in Texas. I also serve as a mayor 
in uh, a uh, small Texas town, which is an event unto itself, and also serve as the municipal court judge here. So I wear a lot of hats, and uh, the benefit of that is it gives me a, a great deal of experience, not only in the disaster uh, field and in emergency medicine, but to understand some of the pressures and specific issues of emergency management related to cities and, and, and disaster law. So that's really well-rounded because you get to see the practitioner side of things, you know, but also the administration side of it, you know, the things that people don't see, that, you know, and the problems they have to contend with. Absolutely. And also get a chance to see some of the issues related to jurisdictions and what they have to work with uh, from their local governmental levels as well. That, that's really good. Do you, I know um, BCFH, uh, I'm sorry, BCFS, HS. It's yes. It's a tough one. Um, I know it's a, a non-for-profit. Do you, do you want to take a minute just to kind of promote it? Because uh, I don't mind promoting, you know, not, not-for-profit organizations because, you know, I want them to get exposure. So do you want to take a moment to talk about the overall sure, industry you. itself? Sure. Um, again, uh, we, we're, we're an international uh, organization. Uh, our, our focus is on providing services to uh, underserved populations. Uh, we uh, have been uh, around since 1944, so we have a very long history and actually started uh, as a organization to help um, Mexican um, children who uh, were, were, um, did not have parents and uh, found an orphanage for, for Mexican children. So uh, our, our roots go back quite a long way. And uh, we have a very large international footprint uh, in, in many uh, of the uh, areas of the world. And, and, and as I said, we um, provide services uh, in that capacity, but we also have an emergency management division, which does specifically disaster response uh, in, in disasters. So we, we wear kind of some unique hats in, in that sense. Oh, well, thank you for providing your services to everybody. You know, I can guarantee there's a lot of people out there that were very happy that you were there. We hope so. <laughs> we just <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I know we started off with the, with the title "Lessons Learned from Hurricane Harvey." So, can you give us a crash course of what Hurricane Harvey was, when it occurred, and where it occurred, and um, you know, sure. give, give us an overview? I think the the most important thing, and I, and I don't want to sound like um, a statistic analysis here. I think the important thing about uh, Harvey and, and what makes it a unique uh, lesson learned, uh, especially in the emergency management field, is is that how staggeringly large an event Hurricane Harvey was. Uh, It was extremely unique. It made landfall three times in six days. Uh, It delivered more than 27 trillion gallons of water over Texas, which actually made Harvey the wettest Atlantic hurricane that was ever measured. So if you can imagine 27 trillion gallons, uh, wow. and the fact that it made landfall three t- times in six days meant that it just wasn't stopping. Um, some parts of Houston uh, received more than 50 inches of rainfall, so much rainfall that the National Weather Service actually had to update its colors that it used uh, on its weather charts to properly account for that that, that amount of rain. Really? Um 
Yeah, there was actually so much rain. This is what I did you know. There was actually so much rain that one-third of Houston being completely flooded, they estimated, one California geologist estimated that the weight of the water sank the city of Houston temporarily by two centimeters. Sank the city? So we're talking wet wow. here. Wow. Did, it, and, it, and, is that, did you say that was temporarily or permanently? Well, they, they say temporarily. I'm not, I don't know that they've actually gone back and, and done measurements and, uh, and that sort of thing. But that, that is some of the statistics coming out of, uh, of Hurricane Harvey's uh, size and, and, and scope. And, yeah, Texas is a big state, uh, but I don't know that there's anything big enough to, to handle 27 trillion uh, tons of uh, or gallons of uh, water. Uh, it, it, it started at approximately August um, 17th, uh, and uh, the, the actual impact and the bulk of the impact continued for, for quite some time because, again, it coming in and, and going out. And, and coming in uh, on uh, so many different uh, locations and dates. So, so it te- technically it formed on August 17th. Technically it dissipated on September 2nd. But uh, it, it came back and, and forth uh, several times. Now, the, the impact uh, of it was, was quite significant. Uh, at, at its peak, there were nearly 780,000 Texans that were evacuated from their homes. Uh, that's a lot of people. There were more than 42 Texans uh, that were housed in 692 shelters in Texas and Louisiana. Uh, and at one uh, convention center, George R. Brown, there were almost 7,000 people in that uh, center uh, alone with approximately 1,700 uh, individuals in that convention center receiving some level of, of medical care. Uh, 61 communities lost drinking water, 23 ports were closed, and 781 roads were considered impassable. Uh, the, the number of people that were rescued is, is astounding. They estimate that they rescued uh, approximately 122,000 people, 5,200 pets, and that at the time of the latest statistics of, of the peak of registration for FEMA, uh, they estimated that some 793 people registered uh, for assistance with uh, FEMA. So, so again, the scope and scale of Harvey was absolutely staggering, as was the cost. Um, they, a cost of about $125 billion, which it's not over yet. But for the economic disruptions to business, unemployment, uh, infrastructure, crop losses, property damage, uh, those things, it, it now ranks as the second most costly hurricane to hit the United States uh, behind uh, Hurricane Katrina. Wow. I knew it rained yeah, a lot there. it's a big but... storm. <laughs> <laughs> so with the challenge, you, you said, you know, uh, what was it, 780,000 people evacuated. How did you get people out? Did they just get in, you know, the provided trucks or, you know, did you just open up the highways and say, go? Well, you know, how, did, how could you get all those people out? You know, I think that we always look at, at, at uh, disasters and say we've got to stop making some of the same mistakes. And I think Harvey was a good example of learning 
from from lessons. Uh, I would say one of the biggest lessons learned was you don't wait uh, until the disaster hits. Uh, a lot of pre-staging. Uh, again, we have the fortunate situation in Texas that the type of high-impact disasters for us are notice events. When you know the hurricane's coming, you do have some time to plan, and we do have the ability to get people moving before the greatest impact as opposed to a hurricane uh, or, or a flood. So uh, with having that, those, these type of notice events, we have to be able to do that pre-planning, get those uh, assets in place so that we can go ahead and have them ready. And that's part of the success for uh, what happened with Harvey. Not only on the, on the state and local level, uh, the, the state and local response uh, planned well ahead of time for this, uh, but the federal response, and this is, this is a great lesson learned from Katrina, where we saw federal assets taking days and days to get there. Uh, our federal partners were already sitting at the, at the start line uh, with, with Texas at that time before it occurred. So a lot of those assets were already in place, and that allowed us to be able to get to people ahead of time. Uh, another pre-planning, um, high, very, very important uh, process was understanding who are the people that are going to have the greatest level of need uh, and, and use a lot of assets. And that are you, those are your people with medical uh, needs, with um, additional needs that may have disabilities, and your more vulnerable populations it, it, to go in and make plans for them. And, and I, I'll use an example. I'll probably talk about this more is the dialysis population. So we know that individuals um, that are on dialysis have to have those services several times uh, a week to be able to maintain their lives. And uh, with the work of the uh, end-stage renal disease uh, agencies uh, and, and organizations in, uh, in Texas uh, and uh, cooperation with the uh, healthcare systems and the dialysis systems and working with dialysis patients, they were able to do a lot of pre-planning that ensured dialysis patients got dialysized before the event. They knew where to go, and when they had to evacuate, they took their meds with them. And as a result, the impact, even though it was much, much higher in Harvey than it was in Katrina, resulted in no loss of life that we know of to individuals who had dialysis because they couldn't get to their services, where in, um, in Katrina there was significant loss of life, and some of it was attributable to people not being able to get to their services. So I, I've got a couple of questions for you here. The first one, um, you mentioned um, assets in place. What kind of assets are we talking about, and how were they in place? Were they already there, or were they? was there some sort of an activation, you know, as soon as the, uh, the chance of Harvey was even, you know, starting to come towards, you know, uh, Texas? Actually, was it, let's move the, the assets now. You know, how was that done? The assets that I'm talking about are, are not just, pre-planned days ahead, they are pre-planned all the time. So again, let me give you another mm. example. We have um, a um, emergency medical task force, and this task force uh, is state-level, state uh, statewide task force. 
uh, and these are ambulance um, services. These are um, uh, special medical teams. Uh, they are um, they work in conjunction with our trauma systems here, and uh, they uh, integrate into um, the response system. And they are able; they train uh, on a uh, regular basis. And they are uh, available and are there during uh, the pre-planning uh, process and get right in there right away and, and, and start um, doing services. So it consists of mobile, mobile medical units, ambulance strike teams, uh, RN strike teams, uh, medical incident support teams, and they were uh, trained, available, and when... Uh, the state saw where some of the impact was going to be. These EM, uh, Texas Emergency Medical Task Force teams, uh, were able to pre-stage in those areas and be available to provide services for individuals um, at the location. Well, it's a perfect spot to end. We've come to the end of our first segment. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dee Grimm, and we're talking about lessons learned from Hurricane Harvey and other catastrophic events. And we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. 
Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We're talking with Dee Grimm today uh, about lessons learned from Hurricane Harvey and other catastrophic events. Uh, Dee, in the last section, you were giving us uh, an overview of Hurricane Harvey and some of the things that occurred. Um, You mentioned uh, pets. Um, So I'm kind of wondering how that was managed because, you know, a lot of people end up leaving their pets or they get separated from their pets. You know, so how how did you uh, deal with that? And the the other question I'd like to ask is um, because in your presentation that you gave at the conference, there's a very interesting uh, slide with pictures of wildlife. So um, could you talk about, like, the pets and wildlife? Well, of course, you know, every, every disaster has its own regional or local flavor, and Texas is no exception. As a matter of fact, Texas is exceptional when it comes to its own local flavor. And, uh, yes, we have some interesting wildlife, and sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between pets and wildlife. Uh, so uh, that, that always makes for interesting planning in, in a disaster uh, arena. Uh, to pets in, um, in that setting, uh, we had as much of an issue with responding to rescuing and taking care of pets as, as we did uh, with people. Uh, and, uh, as you know, people don't evacuate without their pets. Uh, so you, you, that, that has to be factored in. That has to be part of the plan. And, uh, there's sometimes in a, a, a disaster of this scope and scale that, um, you just, you have to do what you have to do. But consistently, we saw pictures of people being rescued with their pets. And, uh, and being accommodated. Uh, the, uh, animal, uh, agencies and organizations came down, uh, that assisted with the process came down nationally. We had animals that were, uh, picked up and taken care of, uh, from many, many different states. So, uh, again, going back to, uh, lessons learned from Katrina, where people were told specifically, you have to leave your pets. We can't accommodate them and take them. Um, we have learned that that just doesn't work. And uh, we saw many, many examples of people uh, being rescued with their pets. Uh, wildlife is, is a problem because, again, we're a real big state. We have a lot of wildlife, and some of it's not always friendly. Um, so, And when you disrupt... Your environment uh, in in an urban setting, you can also bet you're disrupting the environment of all the wildlife around. So people, and, and this was a problem for the floodwaters because you're in the floodwater and you're trying to get out of it, and so is the cottonmouth snake and the alligator and the and the other bugs and insects that you don't want. So uh, you're adding that to the mix of trying to get out of a dangerous situation, and so are these wild creatures, and they can be significantly dangerous as well. So that's something that a lot of people sometimes aren't prepared for. Um, The other big issue for uh, us in Texas is not really wildlife or pets. It's our our animal um, ag. Uh, We've got a large ranch um, population. 
Um, we uh, have a lot of people whose entire fortunes are vested in their cattle and in their sheep and in their crops as well. But uh, losing the cattle is, is a big deal to, to ranchers. And with the floodwaters uh, that occurred, again, um, you have to be able to find ways to, to accommodate that uh, planning well, I- consideration at the state level. I am I was glad to hear about the uh, what you said about pets, because if there was a disaster here, and I've got a dog, and there is absolutely no way in heck I would ever leave him. You know, there's no sure. way. You know, because, uh, and maybe you found this, maybe this is one of the lessons I learned. You can confirm this if, uh, if, if you so um, choose. But if I had him, I would be a lot calmer. And I would be able to listen to your direction a lot better than if I was on my own consistently worrying about what's happening with him. Absolutely. And although I will tell you, and one of the things I've done in um, fire um, situations, I've worked animal rescue and sheltering. And it's odd. It's nobody ever seems to leave behind chihuahuas. They only leave behind mastiffs and big, big overweight dogs. I don't know why that is. <laughs> I've never rescued a small, tiny, sit-in-my-pocket dog. I've only rescued really big dogs with attitude. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's why they're leaving them behind. But I absolutely agree that um, we have to we have to look at how we plan for those um, those members of our family. And I, I know by law that they're not considered members of their family, but by emotion and and uh, reality, they are members of our family. We have well, to plan for them. Yeah, it can cause people to be even more traumatized. Oh, absolutely. And now, there, there's, I think there's things that we can do and better about how we prepare for taking care of our animals in disasters. I think there's a lot of pet education that can go on. I mean, sorry, owner education that can go on about how you have to do the same kind of planning for your pets that you do for your family members. So if you are going back with grandma, you want to make sure you take her medications and if she only can eat certain foods that you might want to take those uh, or make sure you have the information about her allergies and uh, her doctor. Well, you need to do the same thing for your pets. So if you have animals that have very special diets, and we know some of our little furry friends are extremely expensive when it comes to food, uh, then, then take some of that food with you so that the dog or cat, in addition to this incredible stress of being uh, rescued, doesn't have to go through an additional abdominal stress of eating food that they're not used to, and that's kind of messy for everybody, but mm-hmm. also to take uh, their medical records. And, and take identification. Uh, one thing we always recommend is if you're evacuating with your pet and there's a danger of you getting separated, take a picture of yourself with your pet. And that way, if you ever do get separated, you have proof that this is your, your animal. Hmm, interesting. I'll have to do that. I know I've got pictures of, you know, me and my dog all over the place, but uh, you know, uh, putting something in an envelope for such an event, I, it hadn't occurred to me. So that's a good one to catch. Oh, thank you. So uh, let's change gears a little bit. I know with evacuations, um, you were you were talking about tracking. Now, I'm guessing this is tracking of people that have been evacuated, correct? 
That is well. Actually, it's tracking people who've been evacuated and what they bring with them. So, so how, you, can, can you explain that? How a we bit? do that? Yeah. Sure. Uh, and, and this is uh, again uh, Texas, big state. So we have a few more uh, tools in our toolkit, perhaps, than some other jurisdictions may or may not have. But we have a um, tracking system. It's called ETN system, and uh, it is a wristband uh, with barcode that when we are evacuating people, let's say, from the coast of the state along the the coast, and we're putting them on buses or um, transportation, ambulances, whatever, to move them out of the area, we, we we have to track where they go and where they end up. I can't imagine anything worse than having to deal with uh, you have a mother or a father that lives down the down the road from you, and they get evacuated, and you don't know where they are, and you're looking for them. That's that's very stressful. Um, so the um, evacuation track tracking network uh, is a that band system with a barcode, and when they get on the bus, they um, take that little scanner. And they um, put that scanner uh, on the barcode, and that enters it into a tracking system for us um, that we are able to use to keep track of where that person goes. And that tracks where they're they're going, where they end up. Uh, We also can take that banding system, and we can put that on the stuff that they bring with them. So if she, uh, the grandma brings a wheelchair, we can take that and we can band the wheelchair with the same tracking number so that that can stay together. We can even do that with your pet. And that oh. way it's another identification system to ensure that your pet matches your tracking system. Oh. So, you know, all... You don't lose anybody. Just put it that way. And if you get so separated, we, yeah, you know, if I get separated from my other house, I'm, we can find or you can help us find each other. Exactly. Oh, that works. You know, and if somebody's in a wheelchair again, you know, we've lost a wheelchair or something. You know, we, you can find where that is. How 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 successful is that? Has how does that work overall? Is is, is it proven to it's, work well? It works. It's worked very well. The one downside that the state health department um, talked about was this isn't a system that's necessarily used uh, to track patients that are moved from uh, one one area to another, one facility uh, to maybe a, uh, a shelter situation or another location, and not having have that capacity. They kind of on the run. What they had to do was load the app into uh, the ambulance service uh, staff's uh, iPhones and to be able to scan those off of their iPhones. But that's something that I believe that they'll be working to be able to uh, enhance that for the the patient population as well. Oh, I like that system. Um, is it used anywhere else, or do you know of, or is that you know just something there, that there Texas has created? Are the locations that that use it? I think the thing that makes it the most valuable for um, for Texas is that because we're so large, we're moving such large populations, that the application is is that much more important. The other mm-hmm. asset that's obviously really important, to, or the other thing that's important to track, are your assets. 
and and say we're tracking people, but when you have uh, the again the the magnitude uh, of an event like this and the size of the state that we're talking about, you know we're talking about 230 miles of coastline that was impacted and moving these populations is. How do we track all those resources that come flooding in there from the state, from the feds? Uh, and we have to have a tracking system uh, for that. And I think that we did a really, really good job of this. You, uh, you may have seen the uh, chart that I put up there that uh, in, on the presentation that showed the tracking of the assets uh, that we had at one uh, at one uh, snapshot a day, and it actually showed about 1,700 uh, devices that were on ambulances uh, that were tracking those ambulances to, uh, to to their locations and where they were sitting at one snapshot in time during uh, I believe it was the height of the disaster. But you could physically see where each ambulance uh, EMT um asset was moving at that time, and that's very important as well. I, it, it looks amazing. I remember that slide, you know, with just here, you know, a snapshot. If you're wondering, uh, is this area covered, so to speak, you knew right away exactly, yes, it is. There's an ambulance there. See, we can, you've, you've got the asset tag that shows you where. Right, I, and we knew I'm, where they were I'm, going and, and, and where they were at any given time. Again, uh, as fluid as Harvey was with, um, you, at one point an area was fine, and then uh, it, it, the hurricane left and came back, and then, uh, you know, an hour later that area wasn't fine. Uh, it, it was very important not to lose these assets and obviously the, the, the folks that were attached to them. I've got I've got a question for you before we uh, take a break on after this segment, uh, with the the tracking uh, the armbands, was that just for those uh, evacuees who were assisted by the state, or was that for anybody who was on the highway? Just out of curiosity. Well, uh, it, it it primarily is for anyone that we are going to assist move to another location. So if, okay. if you were in Port Arthur and had to get out and we said, well, where are you going to go? And they said, well, going to my mom's house, we don't need to track that. But if they said, uh, I have no place to go, and we said, well, we're going to send you to George R. Brown Convention Center Shelter, then we did need to track that. Ah, I see. I was just kind of curious to see who, who would wear one, if everybody being evacuated or just those going to shelters, you know, and that, that kind of thing. So we've come to yeah, the end of our... Yeah, it's to track oh, folks that we have some um, jurisdictional responsibility for, like for sheltering or something to that extent, yes. Uh, okay. Well, we've come to the end of our second segment. We're talking with Dee Grimm, some lessons learned from Hurricane Harvey and other catastrophic uh, events. Uh, we'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river. Like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. 
Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We're talking with Dee Grimm about lessons learned from Hurricane Harvey. And in our last segment here, uh, Dee, I I hope uh, we can touch base on lessons learned. I'm wondering, you know, what, because it was so large and some of the detail that you gave us, you know, and all the things that were coordinated, what went well and, you know, where, where are some of the areas that we might want to improve on? So let's start with what well, went well. Sure. Um, and, and I have to uh, put, put this in perspective. Uh, I sat at the State Medical Operations Center with, with our, our medical sheltering component and, our, and my, back, my medical um, background. Um, so that, that's probably where I was able to observe uh, more uh, so than, than some other areas so that, that I, I need to probably uh, speak, speak to that. Uh, so, so, so from a medical standpoint, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the hospital experience. Uh, over uh, 24 facilities uh, were evacuated or closed at some time uh, during this event in, in the Houston area, which is significant. Um, one of the the items that came out of an after-action report from the Texas Hospital Association talked about the fact that we still don't have very good capacity at general population shelters to take care of those individuals who have medical needs that they're living at home with and are, are the, the medical needs that help them maintain their independence, help them to maintain their health, but don't require hospitalization. Um, too mm-hmm. often, when we look at disasters and we say, you know, we're evacuating somebody that got a medical need, they're thinking they need to go to the hospital, and that's that's oftentimes not the case. If I can manage, if I'm managing at home with uh, having some need for oxygen, and I take medications, 
and maybe I need some assistance with getting to the store because I don't drive very well. Um, those those aren't, aren't needs that need to go to a hospital for. But should I lose those medical services of getting medications or I don't have my oxygen, then I could be uh, a candidate that needs to go to the hospital. So we really need to be able to manage individuals' ability to maintain their independence and their medical health in the disaster setting without impacting our, our health care systems. And generally we find that process is, is not being done well at the general population shelters. Uh, they're, they're, they're just managing to, to take care of individuals. And what they saw was people that were, had gone to the shelters for those kind of functional support services or those non-emergent uh, chronic conditions and shelters t- sending them to the hospital for that. Uh, and, and, and that's really not uh, a, a fair situation for an impacted hospital, but it's also not a fair situation for an individual that if you, we can just get them uh, those needs that they can stay independent. Um, so, I ahead. talked a little bit about the dialysis, and I, I think this was an area that really made, made a big difference. Um, during uh, Hurricane Katrina, uh, there were about 6,000 uh, patients that were affected and 94 dialysis facilities uh, that were closed. And uh, patients reported uh, during the Katrina that um, the dialysis um, uh, centers uh, didn't, didn't um, assist them with where else to get dialysis, uh, that they um, lost uh, days of uh, studies uh, of the sessions, um, and they missed treatments. And we still had some of the same issues during Sandy. Sandy still saw that, but it, it had improved. Uh, I think that we really saw a much better response in uh, Harvey, uh, the uh, end-stage renal uh, disease network of Texas, began alerting uh, their facilities 120 hours before landfall. Uh, they uh, activated their emergency command center uh, several days before the full impact of the uh, situation. Uh, they had people that uh, left early so that they weren't stuck as, as they could have been. They had uh, the command center uh, was processing dialysis centers, and getting people alternate treatment. So there are a lot of things that, that were, were done um, much better in, uh, in Texas uh, during Harvey for dialysis uh, patients than were done before. In your presentation, you made mention of something called contingency contracts. What's that refer to? I think that really uh, speaks to some of our business continuity concepts uh, mm. that says, when we look at our preparedness, whether whether it be healthcare or any other business entity, and we say, you know, how well are we prepare for disasters, and you say, well, I can board up my place and and I know where to go. And how, how do we ensure that we are able to continue services? And looking at the contracts and the vendors that provide the services, we have to look at a lot of the variables. That, that come into play that we have to plan for that are not going to be available on a, on a steady state basis. So, for example, pharmacy contracts. 
So the, we find very frequently individuals, when they evacuate, they're, they're, they're not thinking about what stuff they take. And oftentimes, maybe they only have a five-day supply of their medications. Or with mm-hmm. many folks, especially older folks, they may not even know what medications they have. I've had... Um, Little ladies come into our shelters, and we'll say, well, you take medications? And she says, well, yeah, I take seven of them. And we'll ask her, which kind, what do you take? And she says, well, I take a blue pill and a pink pill, and one's got a little cross on it. And so people just don't leave with that full list of of medications and a full uh, two-week supply of pharmaceuticals. Um, we Another big need in, in the medical area is oxygen. Uh, we found that in our medical shelters, almost 40% of our clients, our, our guests, come in with some level of oxygen need. And oxygen is, is an interesting uh, consumable medical supply because it really doesn't take a lot to, to if someone has a portable oxygen concentrator that has a, a shelf life about 44 hours of that battery, if I can just get that little lady to the, the plug where she can recharge her battery, she's good to go on that oxygen. But once she runs out, she's a, a, a significant medical concern. So having contingency contracts that, that we recognize our vendors may not be able to respond as they can in steady state, what are our backup plans? Where do we have the backup vendors? Where do we have the vendors that have contingency uh, language in their contracts that say, in a disaster, I'm available 24-7. There's a 24-7 point of contact. But these are my response times that may differ than what their vendor contract response times are in steady state. Uh, and, and one example that we see a lot is um, when we use interpreter services, for people um, who are deaf or hard of hearing or need interpreter services, on a steady state basis, most of the time interpreters need 24 to 48 hour notice. Well, in a disaster, if we have a contingency contract, one thing we might put in there is what is your availability to respond in the disaster that's not 24, 48 hours? Can you respond in four hours or six hours? And if so, what's your price change to do that so we don't get gouging situations during disasters. Mm, did you know? I hate asking the question, but did you see that happening? Not, the, the, not to the extent in Harvey that we've seen in other scenarios. Uh, and one of the reasons is the um, state worked very diligently to get uh, pharmacy contracts and some of those oxygen contracts to ensure uh, that they were in place. Uh, for people in, in the disasters, so I, I did not see. We, you know, we we see the freelance situations, the gas stations that charge, you know, seven dollars for a tank of gas, those sort of things. But but we did not see that uh, to the extent that we've seen it in past um, scenarios. Uh, okay, so after all, all everything you've gone through, and you've done your lessons learned, things that went well. What are some of the areas that? you know, still need to be worked on? You know, some of the things you, you were able to identify saying, you know what, this didn't quite, quite work as well as we had anticipated. Here's, a, you know, an area for improvement. What are some of those? Well, I think, I, I think I'd mentioned one of them uh, from, from the healthcare and the um, social aspect of uh, understanding that uh, in order to uh, ensure that, that people with disabilities and others with access and functional mm-hmm. needs um, are accommodated, 
in um, shelter settings uh, and in, in, these, in these settings that we need to have those functional need support services, that durable medical equipment, personal assistance services, consumable medical supplies available to them so that they can maintain their independence and they can maintain their health. Uh, looking at how, how we can better manage that, I think, uh, is an area uh, for improvement. Um, we didn't talk too much about long-term care facilities. Uh, the long-term care facilities had some mixed success, uh, and typically they, they do seem to get um, the brunt of criticism during these types of disasters. And we did have long-term care facilities that struggled uh, you, you see pictures of the elderly in uh, facilities in Port Arthur. That uh, our patients are still in their beds, surrounded by water. Again, this was an overwhelming event. Um, mm-hmm. But given the widespread impact, where uh, approximately uh, 104 assisted living and nursing facilities uh, reported evacuating over um, 4,400 residents, with 33,000 patients and hundreds of other facilities that had to shelter in place. There was very limited loss of life compared to the, the historic kind of levels with uh, Katrina and, and Rita. So, so I think we're doing better. Uh, I think there still needs to be uh, a better understanding of some of the waiver rules that um, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare has. I, I sat and listened to a lot of questions being asked about what can we do? How do we waive? Uh, what is our authority to, to, to expand our facility? Um, so there was a lot of confusion uh, in some instances about uh, the long-term care suspension rules. Um, so developing and maintaining standardized long-term care suspensions that could be authorized by the government, uh, by the governor would be uh, helpful. Uh, more specific regulations for assisted living city uh, facilities related to emergency plans. Uh, another um, thing that came up was there was some question about some facilities were told to evacuate and, and didn't. So maybe mm. there needs to be uh, better mandatory compliance with emergency evacuation orders and local officials um, being a little more proactive about issuing mandatory evacuation orders, and so that, that people aren't scrambling to get folks out when they're knee-deep in water. Do you think maybe some people are afraid to um, enact those orders in case they're wrong? Then they look, uh, they're, I, that, they look foolish? Do you think that's that might a factor, something but I, I don't. I don't think that's the main factor because I think people inherently yeah. want to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think sometimes the right thing is not evacuating, though. We have seen statistically that evacuating medically frail uh, individuals and patients is fraught with danger. Uh, we know that, that during Hurricane Rita, for example, we had uh, approximately 90 deaths that were directly related to the evacuation process. So it, to, to evacuate individuals who are in long-term care facilities who are medically frail is not always the best thing to do, and you have to weigh the benefit versus the risk. And mm-hmm. I, I, I want to think that, that people that uh, run facilities like this are, are doing it in the interest of the best interest of their um, patients. I, I, think, uh, so I, I agree have, with you. you. I think for the that. most part they are. 
you know, they, they, they have to be, you know, they're, they're, they're in that industry to care for people. So I think, you know, they, they would be obviously putting the, the, their best effort forward, you know. So I, I don't think it's a, it's a matter of, hey, we're just going to send your evacuation or I think that, that they are sincerely looking at what is the risk of moving individuals that maybe at this moment in time are not at risk uh, mm-hmm. and, and what that would do to um, degradate their, their medical condition and compromise their medical condition. And that's, that's a difficult balance to, to make in a disaster when those are not the best time to make decisions. That's true. And on that, we've actually come to the end of our show. So, Dee, I would like to thank you very much for all the the information you've given us about uh, Hurricane Harvey and what worked and what didn't work down there. Hopefully, our listeners around the globe are taking, uh, you know, really putting an ear to their uh, laptops or their headphones or whatever and taking note of some of these things. And maybe there's some of the uh, ideas they can take back with them and uh, put in place. And I want to thank you and your practitioners because I know a lot of you and your colleagues are out there on the front lines helping people like me if there's a situation. So I really do appreciate all the work that you've put together and all the, the work that you do. Well, thank you, Alex. Thank you for the chance to, to spend uh, some time, and uh, hopefully this is helpful uh, to some folks who uh, will be listening. Uh, I'm sure it is. It's been helpful for me. There's been some great uh, bits of information in here. So thank you uh, for joining us. And to everybody out there listening, uh, you know, as I always say at every show, Please stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.